This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Julian Clark, ACE. Julian was nominated for an Oscar, a BAFTA, and an Ace Eddie for his editing of District 9. He was nominated for another Ace Eddie for Deadpool and won an Ace Eddie for his editing of the pilot episode of The Handmaid's Tale. I've interviewed Julian Clark before. Today, we're discussing Terminator Dark Fate. Um, but a lot of stuff you've done is sci-fi related. Uh, do you feel like you're getting pigeonholed, or is that something you worry about in your career? You're like, hey, bring it on. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think you don't, no one wants to be like a, at least I don't want to be like a one-trick pony. So certainly it's like a thing where it, it's a thing where it becomes comfortable for you, and it becomes the kind of thing, well, oh, well, he's the guy who does this. And so it becomes like it becomes easy to kind of carry on the pattern. But I mean, I'll, I also carry on the pattern because I like that stuff. Um, so to me, like I'm attracted to, I guess, like, I wish there was a, a, more, a better word for it, but like kind of highbrow genre stuff. And so, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, horror, fantasy, sci-fi, you know, uh, crime movie, like uh, to me, I like kind of that stuff that sort of cuffs on being kind of, uh, smarter, adult-oriented, R-rated, and kind of like, but but kind of immersed in genre. And a lot of that stuff kind of happen, tends to happen in science fiction, but I'm kind of interested in it across the board. And, you know, I mean, to, and I'm also interested in comedy and drama as well. And so, I mean, Deadpool was a fun project because it was so multifaceted that I kind of got to kind of dip my toes into comedy more on that one. Um, and I think I'll do a bit more of that in the future too, for sure. And then, you know, but after I kind of uh, worked on Deadpool, I worked on uh, the pilot of Handmaid's Tale, which, you know, technically you call it science fiction, but I mean, in a way, it was really almost like working on like... A period piece. Uh, <laughs> a period piece, or, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it had a kind of like, you know, like a Russian play kind of feel, right? Very like, you know, uh, people in rooms staring out of windows being very alienated and lots of stuff done with like real minutia of the kind of like what the actors are doing with their eyes and what what's said and what's unsaid. And so very different type of editing than kind of, you know, robots and explosions and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, so it was when I worked on Handmaid's Tale, I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is so nice to work on something that's like not effects driven and is all about like real subtle stuff happening. Uh, so yeah, it's absolutely, it's nice to go back and forth. Um, 
But, you know, in terms of movies outside of TV, the kind of club of people making kind of well-budgeted, dramatic movies, it's very small. It's a very small number of movies happening in Hollywood, and it's a very small club of people working on those movies. And so in a way, you know, that's a very, uh, it's a very exclusive little niche to kind of work on the well-funded, interesting, dramatic uh, movies out there. Uh, I'd like to join that club at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, uh, and it also has to do with the directors you work with, right? Those guys usually, you know, they're working on those types of projects a lot of sure. the time. Sure, so, yeah. yeah. Um, something I noticed as I started going through your IMDb page was that you've done a bunch of shorts. And, and help me out with the pronunciation of Neil's last name. Blumkamp. Blumkamp. Um, you've done a bunch of shorts for him. You know, what's the value or what's the purpose? Obviously district nine kind of started as a short and became yeah. a feature, right? right. Yeah, so, so, uh, why, why is he, and why are you working on those shorts? I mean, I was working on them just cause I like Neil and he does cool stuff. And I'm like, you know, I was like, why wouldn't I? Uh, and for him, I think, you know, uh, he doesn't really ever kind of look at anything he enters in as like, oh, well, uh, you know, I'm going to make less money doing this or there's less of market for this or whatever. Like the pragmatics of things really don't play a major factor. So for him, it was, I mean, he got like a bunch of money from Valve, uh, the video game company that was kind of interested in kind of exploring, kind of making some content. And for him, he was like, cool, like shorts, I can do like a bunch of, you know, kind of a bunch of ideas and kind of not have to spend a year doing them. And so it just became kind of like an idea lab, you know, like I can do a little bit of, I can do a bit of a Vietnam sci-fi thing. I can do a bit of like a, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, do another kind of one in South Africa that's a little bit different with Raqqa. And so it was just kind of a way of like, hey, I can kind of do a bunch of little things and not kind of like sink like a whole year into them and just kind of basically get to kind of use my creativity in a bunch of different directions. And so it was, I think he just kind of looked at it as like, it was kind of very freeing because, you know, we watch a movie and you're like, okay, there's an hour and a half of our lives or whatever. But like when you're the director, it's like, I mean, it's even, it's, you know, multiple years, years, right? Multiple years. There's the development and the writing and then there's the shooting of it and then the editing. And then like, you got to go out and tour around with it. And it's like a, it's like a, it's like a thing. Like editing takes a long time, but that whole, seeing that whole process through it's. So I think in a way doing the shorts was like, oh man, I, I don't have to kind of, have that whole crazy kind of rigmarole that goes along with it. I can just kind of, uh, you know, kind of dip my toe into a bunch of fun things and kind of play around. Uh, you know, at the end of the day though, of course, it's like, uh, we kind of make our bread with features. So I think, you know, uh, I don't think he's done with features by a long shot. It's cool that it, that stuff was funded. I wasn't sure whether he was just experimenting or not having seen those shorts. And, and does that stretch, do those shorts stretch you in different ways or allow you to use different muscles or is it different than features cutting those shorts? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it is, I mean, they're a lot more impressionistic, you know, they're less narrative. Uh, and so I think, yeah, you're less held to kind of like a kind of like, well, you need to kind of have this beginning, middle ending and kind of pay off a big character arc kind of thing. You can kind of have something that is more of a fever dream when it's sort of short it, uh, because, you know, a, a fever dream that's two hours long, you know, people make them, but like that is very something that like, you know, is a very niche audience, but what people will kind of like watch a cool 10 minute fever dream uh, that's on YouTube or something like that. Uh, so yeah, I guess it's kind of freeing in terms of like, you can kind of uh, 
you're less beholden to kind of like this sort of a plus one, you know, one plus two equals three kind of storytelling. Yeah. And can you pull any of that stuff into your feature work? Like the things that you learn on those features or are those shorts? Uh, I mean, I mean, maybe in a particular type of sequence where you're kind of doing something kind of uh, less linear. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, to get into uh, this movie, um, uh, Terminator, um, the you're talking about being less linear. If you've got a storyline that is based on time travel, does that allow you to change structure or be less linear in edit storytelling? Well, you know, you would think that maybe the Terminator movies would be like that, but if, you know, it's not Back to the Future 2, right? Which, I mean, in a way, is that sort of what Genesis was trying to do, right? Become like a more of a time-bending movie, like Looper or something like that, right? But if you think about it, like, in the sort of Cameron, you know, era, time travel uh, is really kind of just this sort of means to set the table for, like, okay, now the combatants have entered this timeline and there's a sort of stakes associated with this sort of future that, you know, you are trying to prevent. But there's not like a lot of bouncing around and like which, you know, which thing will happen here. Every once in a while, there's a time paradox that gets kind of brazed or something like that. But that's kind of the extent of it. So in a way, you know, uh, the Terminator movies and our, our one, aside from we have a couple like kind of flash forwards that, you know, we could kind of shuffle around in the movie. It really is, since it's a chase, right? It really is actually like this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, right? So you can't have, you know, Mexico, you know, Texas happened before Mexico, right? Mexico leads to, you know, you know Mexico leads to Texas. And, uh, and so in a way it was actually kind of a movie that even though it is time travel, it was quite linear. And so there was kind of the structural stuff you could do with it. You could kind of move around, okay, where do we check in with the villain? Where do we put the sort of flash forwards? And those were kind of the elements you can move around. And then the rest of the stuff is just kind of the structure you could really do within the sequences, like get out earlier or kind of cut to this character here and that kind of stuff. So it was actually like Deadpool was a much more kind of structural, structurally malleable movie than, than this one was. Mm, that's interesting. Um, how is it uh, working or switching gears between two directors you worked with uh, several times before? Is it, um, do you kind of have to go, okay, I'm back in Neil mode or I'm back in Tim mode or? Yeah, I mean, I mean I've both done it, you know, enough with both of them that it's a pretty like, uh, you know, it's it's like pretty in there just in the muscle memory, so I can just slide right into it. There's not like a oh, uh, it's so, you know, uh, such a kind of radically different way of working or something like that. I mean, uh, Tim likes to sit in the room a lot, though he he didn't you know he didn't get to sit in the room as much as he did in Deadpool on this one, uh, because just of the sheer quantity and scope of the VFX work that he was he would just be in these like you know six hours of reviews a day or whatever. So. Uh, so there was like a, he didn't get to kind of hang out with me as much as he likes to hang out with the editor. You know, some, some directors, they are a bit too fidgety to sit in the edit room for too long. You know, they're kind of, uh, it's all a bit too glacial for them, <laughs> the process. But Tim kind of likes the glacial process and kind of like going through the minutia with you when he has the time. But he didn't have quite as much time to do that on this one. Uh, you know, I'm sure he would have happily edited it for several more months and kind of like, gone through the dailies with me more. 
uh, I'm going to get a chance to interview uh, Walter Murch. And so I read uh, the conversations, which I don't know if you oh, read, you that read that. I, I have read that, yes. I, for, I read it a long time ago, and then I'm rereading it. And one of the things that he mentioned, I kind of wanted to see whether you've got similar things, is um, pointing out the particular foibles of one director over another. He'll go, so I say, you know, I can't remember, you know, De Palma would say, you can't cut in the middle of a word, you know, you have to wait till the end of the sentence or, and then somebody else says, I hate when you cut at the end of the sentence, you got to cut in the middle of the word. <laughs> yes. Uh, anything similar like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Rules. What are some rules that, that you've learned? From- Miller hates double cut action, which is something that is like, it, it's, it's tricky because a lot of, a lot of, you know, when stuff happens really fast, Right. Like double cutting is is something that you often just kind of go to just so you can kind of slow the action down long enough that the shots are long enough that you can kind of read what's happening. But he really likes it to kind of not be double cut. Sometimes he double cut a little bit and lets you get away with that, but but very double cut, which sometimes sometimes you like really double cut, like you have the thing explode like three times in a row. Like he he's not a fan of that. He kind of feels like, oh, you're pausing it in time, it's artificial. And so uh, we do a lot of stuff to try to like not have the action be double cut um, for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the first, that's the main one. That's one. I, I, I think there's probably a bunch, but that's just the one that jumps to mind. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, somebody else, uh, he said, uh, Merch said, like, they hate prelapse you know, prelapping dialogue over a scene or, you know, like over like a shot of a white shot. Like, what is the building talking? No, the person in the building is talking. Right. Before we, we see them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of prelapse either, but they do sure, they sure help you kind of speed up the pace or if a transitions kind of feels kind of sloppy, they can kind of smooth it. But so sometimes I do it, but I don't love it, but. Your personal preference is to stay away from prelapse. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's an interesting take. Um, yeah, everybody's got a, their thing. I've worked with multiple producers and you're like, okay, this person, what, what is this person like and not like? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so we talked about structure. Uh, one of the big things is you're back on premiere again, correct? Or are you just permanently on premiere? No, no. I mean, I mean, I'm not like a, a disciple of like one platform, you know? I mean, uh, uh, Tim on Deadpool is like, hey, we're planning to edit on premiere, on premiere. And I was like, okay, cool. And then we did it. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of challenges to that one. So once we were kind of done it, uh, we were, you know, we're talking to Adobe, okay, these are the things that'd be great to work on, you know? Um, Cause like Tim, you know, Tim's definitely like, uh, you know, sticking, sticking by Adobe for sure. So, uh, so when we came on to Terminator, they had kind of basically made a whole new version for us, um, which I think is probably gonna be publicly released pretty soon. And they basically did a bunch of stuff that kind of let you do the kind of avid unity style kind of networking shared project stuff where you have basically bin locking. And to us that, that is kind of like, you know, it's not a very sexy feature, you know, cause it's, you know, been around for a long time with avid, but it is like unique in that, like basically all the other edit softwares haven't bothered to make that happen. And it is integral to a movie of this size that you have that functionality just because you know we had like four assistant editors three you know a vfx editor with two assistants so we have like you know eight or nine people like in the project file right updating vfx pulling lists so the idea that you're going to go like have to go like well i'm 
you know, who has the real one project file open? <laughs> you know, it's just like, and you're doing it all in the finder level. That's how we were doing it on Deadpool. Like we got away with it on Deadpool because it was, you know, we were, it was, it was smaller, you know, uh, but this one was like, you know, 2,300 VFX shots. Like we really needed that uh, functionality and it really worked. Uh, so even though this movie was a lot, uh, bigger than Deadpool in, in those regards, it actually was a kind of a, a much smoother process using the software. And they're going to work on it and evolve it further. So, you know, on the, the next Miller project, then it will be even kind of more uh, souped up for, for this type of movie. Got it. And, and the last time we talked about using Premiere, I remember there were issues and we talked about what some of the challenges were, but it's that's, how many years ago was that, that you were actually editing that? In, on Deadpool, that was like 2015, I think. Yeah, so in four years, it's come a long way. And um, But that's would you say that's probably the biggest thing, the, even though it's unsexy, is the kind of bin-locking concept? Yeah, I mean, I told them to essentially focus on the non-sexy stuff because, you know, really the non-sexy stuff is often the stuff that causes your assistant editors to stay there until 2 in the morning, right? So, yeah, so they worked on... Uh, the project files open way faster. We had that kind of thing where we had really big project files and they would take like four minutes to open. And now they're, you know, now that the combination of, I think, working on how fast they open with the way that the 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 the, the, the software now splitting all these things into separate projects, essentially a bin is a project, right? That now they would open up in like 10, 15 seconds or whatever. So that combined with the uh, networking and then just a bunch of kind of work on, uh, having it integrate more successfully into Pro Tools so that the sort of turning over into sound was a much smoother process. There's still a little bit more work to do there in terms of change lists for the mix stage. But uh, yeah, just across the board, all that kind of not particularly exciting, you know, new feature stuff, but just working on kind of having the whole kind of machine churn in, in, a, in a kind of an efficient and non-frustrating way, we kind of came kind of light years ahead on that stuff. So you really are using essentially a different project for every scene? Uh, yeah, I mean, essentially just think of, if you're an Avid user, think of a project as a bin. And so, and then there's like a new type of project which holds all those projects, right? A master project. Uh, so um, that's kind of how it works. Yeah, so you kind of create like a, a project file for scene one, for scene two, and a project file for real one and real two and et cetera. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it's a kind of a project within a project, basically. Got it. Uh, is there anything that you really uh, find that you love in Premiere that when you go to Avid, you're like, oh, I missed this thing or this? Well, there's a lot of stuff in Avid where I use it and it's just like feels ancient. Like audio suite makes me want to kill myself. Like, you know, deverb and you know, you're just like, and you're just like, like, why the hell is that thing still around, <laughs> right? It, I mean, the way just like that you go, okay, here's like a little filters tab and here's a stack of like audio filters, like, uh, you know, that makes way more sense, you know, in terms of just, it's just simple, intuitive. Audio suite is horrendous. And the same thing with like, you know, stepping in for using filters and all that stuff. All that stuff is so clunky, right? So that kind of stuff where you're, you know, it works, there's a way to do it, but it's just kind of clunky and slow and feels like it was designed like 20 years ago, which like it was, right? And then they haven't ever gone in and kind of go, okay, there's like a, a tidier way, right? Um, so 
I guess it's kind of that kind of stuff that sort of still feels pretty kind of old. Like, uh, you know, Avid's kind of like the sort of the beat up car that like keeps running forever. It like will get you there, but it's like there's some pretty creaky stuff that's been in it for a long time. Got it. Okay. Um, uh, let's talk just a little bit about your approach. Has it changed any since the last time we talked? When, you, when you're looking at a blank timeline, you get dailies in. What's your approach to viewing dailies and then starting on a scene? Well, it's all really kind of, it kind of depends on how much has been shot and how much time I have, you know? Like if you have like five hours of dailies or something like that, right? You could like watch all of them and then start cutting and, and then like you'd basically be nowhere because you'd like sunk like a huge portion of the day into watching every single. So it's depending on like if they've shot a little bit, then you watch it all. If they've shot like a ton, then you kind of have to kind of prioritize, okay, what's the stuff I'm gonna like watch all the way through? What's the stuff I'm gonna kind of scrub through and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like, you know, just time management in terms of like what you're up against, you know, it's a nice luxury to get to watch everything, but sometimes like watching every single frame is like not possible based on the quantity they're shooting. Uh, you know, if you have multiple editors, then you can kind of split it up and stuff too. But this is, I was on my lonesome on this one. No, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, if you listen to, I think many of the interviews, yeah. a lot of people will say, I watch everything eventually but when you're cutting dailies, it's a different story. You're, yeah. So like when you come, when you when you come back and you're kind of revisiting the scenes, then it's like definitely like kind of thing of like okay, like let's finish that, finish finish seeing what I what I didn't see in the first go around. Yeah. So what are what are some of the ideas you're saying? I have to decide what I'm going to watch completely and what I'm going to scrub through. What would be some of those choices? What what do you watch, you know, glancingly, and what do you really dive into? Um, close-ups as opposed to wide shot masters or something like that well i mean i think you know i, I mean i think yeah w wide shot masters are often like you know depending on how the director goes that's often where they kind of warming up the actors so if they did like 15 of those that that might those might be some of the ones that i don't watch all of right because <laughs> uh, you know uh, often the actors are saving their good stuff for the close-ups as well as the fact that the kind of sometimes the director is kind of finding it a, you know a little bit in those first kind of masters and stuff so sometimes you can kind of find some stuff that is quite different in those early masters that is interesting but that's kind of like you know uh you know more often than not they're kind of like the stuff that is more disposable i guess so so yeah so you know uh you know definitely the circle takes a bunch of the close-ups probably like some less of the masters and you know if there's kind of like you know uh boring stuff like inserts of phones and stuff like that you know that's something you can definitely scrub through <laughs> yeah you know oh I, I got a shot of the phone great that's all i need to know yeah and, and the close-ups are kind of like uh they're, they're kind of interesting right because it's like you know often the last takes are the circle takes and those are the ones where you know it's closest to what the director's vision is but then sometimes those are ones also that are almost they're the most polished in a way that they're like they can be slightly artificial too and so it's sort of sometimes you find oh the earlier takes where they're like more off the cuff those are more naturalistic than the, they kind of hit the beat harder in the later takes. And so that becomes kind of a toss up too about kind of what you're going for. If you want something that sort of sort of sells it really hard, but is a little bit, has a little bit of artifice to it or something that's kind of more naturalistic in the earlier takes. 
do you learn uh, the kind of the working habits of your actors where you're like, oh, uh, Ryan Reynolds is always great on take one and two, and by take 12 and 13, he's bored and... Yeah, well, I mean, you certain, you, there's certain actors who are very consistent, you know, and then they modulate a little bit or, or that they're kind of always great and they improvise, so you have to watch everything to see, you know, and then the circle deck really is like the director, I prefer this improvisation the most, right? <laughs> it becomes kind of a, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's other actors that are totally erratic and you're kind of like, oh, I have to kind of like piecemeal, like, you know, and, uh, and you know, I, I can't, I won't comment on which ones those are, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Uh, for sure. So yeah, you kind of, you find kind of people have different, some, and some of the ones where you kind of go, oh, do I have it? And you're like, oh, actually they come out great, right? You have just the sort of the stuff to make it work. And so you would never know. Uh, and then others are remarkably consistent, but then they're actually still kind of troubling in terms of like, that there's sort of a thing there that is like a, a spark that's missing or something, even though that they kind of like, you know, hit their mark and say their line kind of consistently, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's weird. Sometimes the ones that you think are trouble are, are aren't trouble, and the ones that are trouble aren't. You know, so it goes goes back and forth. I totally get that. And when you start piecing that stuff together, do you select reels, or are you just going from the bins, or do you put locators in? How do you remember all those great moments? Well, you know, I definitely with action stuff, I find action, you know, they do it so many times and then there's often, you know, it's often very quickly cut. And so you're kind of like, you like when you're trying to figure out what's the best punch, then I'll really create, try to get my assistants to like, I literally try to break it down to like each beat. So like, okay, here is that punch from every single camera angle and take all in a run. And then you can kind of go, okay. And then you can kind of just sort of go, this is the best, this is the best, this is the best, or these are the three best, and then even make a mini string out between those and then pick and kind of do that for all the action stuff. And then, you know, of course, you know, when you're cutting action, you go, oh, these two angles don't cut, I have to figure something to go in between. But that's a good, gives you a good starting point for kind of pick, finding your kind of favorite pieces because the action stuff, it can kind of be overwhelming with how much they shoot and how many angles. And sometimes the differences between the takes are like very subtle. So you're trying to, you know, like, this, you know, punch is like 10% more credible than this one. And, and it kind of, uh, you know, the ability to decipher that kind of just from memory is like, I don't have it. So the string outs are kind of essential with that stuff. And then with the dialogue stuff, it really becomes more like a quantity of how much they shoot. I can kind of hold the dialogue performance stuff in my head if it's like not a, a, a horrendous amount of takes. But if it's a huge amount of takes, then it's sort of you get into kind of locatoring or stringing that out stuff as well. Um, you know, I, I kind of think it would be great to have string outs of the dialogue stuff as well, but I've kind of felt like that's inflicting a lot on top of the assistant editors to do that on top of the action string outs. So I've kind of, you know, I only really ask it when I'm desperate. I, I, it is actually very helpful in some scenes, you know, where they're, they're they're kind of short on time and stuff. You know, you got that sort of thing where the director is kind of resetting a lot, a bunch or doing alts or kind of jumping around in the scene. And then it really becomes very hard to kind of know where stuff is in your bins and then stringing it out is kind of helpful because, you know, when they're not kind of abiding by that, that, you know, a take, it's a take kind of thing and they're jumping around a scene in a given take, then, you know, locators only can only help you so much it becomes pretty confusing and and you can be pretty inefficient in finding stuff so string outs can definitely help in that kind of situation um are your how are you organizing things in bins Is this do you use the same workflow or the same methodology when you're working in premieres or when you're working in avid or do you 
Oh, actually, yeah. I mean, that was another feature that they made for us. I don't know if it's been generally released yet or not, but they they basically made like a custom bin setting. You know how like you can kind of move stuff around uh, rather than having this kind of walk to retile to shape thing that is the Adobe kind of standard. They had a kind of thing where you could essentially drag the clips around as you want and kind of essentially have your own kind of layout made by the assistant editors. And so we, you know, I, I go for that. I mean, a lot of people do where you have that, the kind of A cam, B cam, C cam, and then the kind of group group kit kind of plumped on, on top. Uh, so you kind of have, uh, you kind of have it done that way. And then you kind of, you know, have your kind of major, your masters and then your close-ups and then kind of like your odd kind of like, oh, here's the inserts kind of at the bottom. And so uh, this custom view layout thing kind of let us do it that way, uh, which made it a lot more kind of, helpful for in terms of like, you know, finding stuff rather than it just being kind of sorted by name and, and, and kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, that was kind of where I was going with that question. It's interesting. I haven't seen that feature yet. So. Yeah, so that might be part of the next uh, release too, or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, and then the premiere folks said that there was a bunch of stuff that they'd done for this movie. So yeah, I guess that was one of the ones they did for me and not for the assistants. <laughs> <laughs> me and probably a bunch of other editors. <laughs> Got it. Julian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Julian Clark, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like and a share, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.